Welcome, listeners, to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. With me on today's podcast is my friend Megan Decker. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. Megan is going to talk about her new book. It's called Tender Leaves of Hope, Finding Belonging as an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint Woman. This book will be out on Amazon on April 10th. This podcast is coming out before April 10th, and we'll put the Amazon link in the podcast so you can pre-order on Kindle or the or the paperback version. If you're listening to this podcast on April 10th or later, you can go to Amazon and get the book. Um, an audiobook um, version is coming out. It may be there by the time you make it to Amazon. I'll just read, listeners, um, what's been written about the book that I just printed off Amazon so you can get a feeling for Megan what the book's about, and what we're going to talk about in this podcast. Megan Decker is a woman who's attracted to women. She is also married to an amazing man, and together they are each committed to their faith, their covenants, and their testimony, the testimony of Jesus Christ and His Church. Growing up, Megan could see how her deep spiritual faith and her attraction to women could, I'm, I'm misreading this, listeners, could not see how her deep spiritual faith and her attraction to women could coexist. But after decades of shame, denial, and hiding, Megan came to accept this part of herself. She realized that while she can't decide to change her sexual orientation, she can decide how to respond to the circumstances of her life. And as she felt the tender love of the Lord, her faith deepened. Her experience will help church leaders, friends, and family understand it to support their LGBTQ loved ones. Now Megan is sharing her story along with insights from dozens of other LGBTQ Latter-day Saint women. Through their open experience, you will come to understand that you are not broken and you are not alone. Shame is the real enemy. Your path forward begins with reaching out to God. As you follow these women's stories, you will feel the Spirit testify of God's love for his LGBTQ children and you. Uh, Megan has been on the podcast before. She's episode 473. Um, If you want to listen to that episode or re-listen, it'll give you more of a background of Megan's story. And some of that obviously will come out in this podcast and as part of the book. Um, Megan and I are friends. Um, We're the same age. We (laughs) went to the same high school. Um, our yearbook pictures are about three pictures apart. <laughs> um, since your maiden name is Peters and my na- current name and always my name is Osler, we're very close in the Highland Eye 1979 yearbook. Um, I'm just honored to have you on the podcast, Megan. You're doing unique work, and um, I really encourage people to to read her book, um, share it with others, act on the impressions that you've um, feel on how to improve the experience for LGBTQ Latter-day Saints. Anything you'd like to share at this point, Megan? I'll just say, I, as you were talking, this just came to mind that I, I have had one review so far, uh, and it was from my daughter. My daughters were the, the readers that I was most concerned, um, whose reaction I was most concerned about. And, uh, she uh, she did a an Instagram uh, video story just responding to it and um, one of, what she mentioned was that she just felt the intensity of God's love for His children 
through that. And I hope that's what anyone who reads this will feel. I have a lot of things to say. I have experiences to share. I have experiences from other women to share. Uh, I have some doctrinal things to share. But if, if a reader goes away feeling, knowing how deeply God loves his children and, and them, then, then I think, you know, I hope the book accomplishes its purpose. Just, and the only thing I'll share, probably the only thing I'll try to share is just a little more background. This is the um, episode description I wrote for episode um, 473. If you're just connecting with Megan for the first time, this is just a little more bio. Um, They're the parents of five daughters. You just mentioned one daughter and her wonderful insights, 15 grandchildren, um, active in the church and in a wonderful marriage. And she talks about how she came out to herself and her husband in her 50s. So that's part of your unique story. And I won't read this all, but also it's interesting. Megan wrote Reaching for Hope, an LDS perspective on recovering from depression. She wrote that 22 years ago. That book is still at Desert Book. Um, so you're a multiple, multiple LDS author writing about wonderful subjects. And one of the things I like about M- Megan's story is her long view She's been walking this road for many decades and just has a long view of this space, which I think is helpful for allies. I think it's helpful if you're LGBTQ to know your best path forward. And I think it's helpful for parents. So I think that's some of the things you'll pick up as you read Megan's book and in this podcast is that kind of long view. And I would call it a very mature, tempered grace-filled perspective that um, I think is very helpful for others, especially people stepping in this space for the first time. So tell us why you decided to write this book now. <laughs> uh, I was I was speaking with, with Ben Shalati, who's one of my mentors. Um, Same. <laughs> yes. Uh, and, and at the end of the conversation, he mentioned that his publisher was looking for a woman's voice. And I laughed it off because writing a book is a lot of work. And I feel like I'm kind of past that, or I felt that I was past that. And, uh, and then I just, I, I couldn't rest. I, uh, that thought just kept coming back to me. And, and so I thought, well, I'll just reach out to my, my previous editor, same publisher. And, uh, and, 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 you know, if they say, no, we're not really interested, then that'll be the end of it. And I can finally get a good night's sleep. And they didn't, they said they were interested. And so, um, I worked, worked on, on that. And, and, uh, as I was doing it, I realized that this couldn't be just my story because there is no one way forward in this space. It is so customized and tailor-made, and I think the Lord leads us on on individual paths um, toward His purpose, and and we uh, have different circumstances, different opportunities, and different needs to learn different things. And I, I was thinking as I was driving here about, uh, about our, our fear of making a mistake. And I'm so glad that I think that fear was not present for, for many of us in, uh, in the pre-mortal existence. Uh, because it would have kept us from coming here. <laughs> we're we're here. We're making mistakes. That is how we grow. That is how we learn. That's how our brain 
how our brain learns. If we if we make the right choice, it it doesn't activate our brain in any way. It's just we're just doing what what we knew we were going to do. When we make a mistake, our brain kind of sits up and I'm doing a really poor paraphrase of a of a, an amazing book, but it sits up and pays attention and that's where learning takes place. And um, and so I think we as we each travel these individual paths, we have different experiences and that's why I felt it was so important to incorporate other women's voices beyond my own. Um, and as I and I, at first I thought it would just be, you know, a handful and, and that grew to over 40 women at this point. I'm still, still doing some interviews, still talking to people, still learning more, uh, trying to share some of those stories on my, on my blog, on, on my, um, on my website, which is just megandecker.com. And, and as I heard those stories, I realized how much richness and wisdom and pain and uh, and and experience there is beyond my own, and that that was the my favorite part of writing the book. Grinding out the chapters was horrible. It's the hardest hardest writing project I've ever ever done. Um, but those interviews those interviews were the things that kept me going. They were so beautiful, and those stories needed to be shared. I will say I don't share anyone's story other than my own. Um, I work really hard to protect their privacy, even if, even if they were comfortable being out and actually didn't want to hide, didn't want to have a pseudonym. I, I wanted to do that because we're capturing them at one moment in time. Their lives are going to evolve. Books last a long time on the shelf. I was in Deseret Book the other day and walked by and was surprised to see my depression book still there. So it lasts, a, they're, they're, they're out there for a long time. And so I wanted to preserve their anonymity just because their their lives are evolving and growing and changing. And what they say now may not be what they would say five years from now or a year from now. Um, but, but those, so I... I don't tell the whole story of their lives that they shared with me, but I draw on their insights, um, their perspectives, their wisdom, their experiences in kind of thematically arranged ways. I love I love what you've done here. So it sounds like it's your story. Obviously, mm-hmm. your name's in it and your personal story, and you've been real open with your story. Yeah, and it's the framework. It's the framework for the book. But I love how you involved other women. Do you want to talk more about just why you decided to involve other women's stories? I I I want to be really clear that my story is not um, is not the way forward for everyone. So if somebody were to read, if a parent were to read my book and send it to their child and say, look, you can be active in the church and you can be gay and you can figure it out and you could marry someone of the opposite sex and you could be happy. That is not, I hope, I hope that never happens. Please don't do that. Um, my, my story is unique. Every story is unique. And so those, those other voices needed to be heard. The women who, whose husbands wouldn't stay when they, when they found out that their wives were gay. And so those women didn't have the option to stay in their marriage. Um, women who could not find, you know, couldn't make it work for them to be with a man. And they have found real happiness 
um, in a beautiful, committed same-sex relationship. Um, women who are working to try to integrate their love for the gospel and their their love for for women. I one woman I interviewed said it wasn't it wasn't a struggle between head and heart. It's between heart and heart. These two loves that that are so powerful and trying to find a way to to integrate them, um, to find a place of of balance for those. And so so everyone there's just so so much insight and wisdom and I learned I just felt like I was getting pro tips you know when on on certain and some of the questions I think were were more for me than for the book um and and I I learned so much and I changed a lot of my opinions based on what I learned from them I really felt like I was talking to women who had um who had been working this this uh this 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 road this you know walking this road i guess is is what i want to say for so long and had been uh were further along than i was even if they were younger than me because i was in denial for so long um i i spent years having a firewall between my life and this aspect of my life and so these are women who have been maintaining this balance for for decades while I was in denial for decades. So I I learned a lot from them. There's a lot of questions I think our listeners would have at this point, because that was a beautiful segment, Megan. Um, I love the grace you're giving to everybody on their respective paths. It seems like you're not prescribing the, the right path for everyone. You're giving grace to everyone to decide their best path forward. Why, you know, when you talk to, you don't want your book to be sort of made to, to prescribe the path for, let's just say there's a younger lesbian woman that's come out to her parents and you're worried that this book will be used to that younger lesbian woman or gay woman, um, whichever label she takes to say, this is how you do it. This is how you stay you know, whatever words we use on the covenant path within the teachings of the church, fully participate in the church. Why would you not, why would you be nervous about your book being used in that way? It, it's weaponizing it. And I hope if, if that happens, that she takes it and tosses it out the window. <laughs> because that, Just that, explain that, what that, why weaponizing, what that means. Uh, it, it would be taking this and using it, using it to try to force someone else into into behavior that is not right for them. I think when we look to any other mortal for direction or guidance for um, for our specific life, we we've we've fallen short. Um, God, one of the things that was consistent with almost I'd say ninety nine percent of the women I interviewed was a deep sense of God moving in their lives, of his awareness of them, of his willingness to give them direction, um, of his love for them. And the final question that I ask, and here's, sorry, spoiler, but the final question that I ask and that I kind of end the book with is, you know, what what would you say to a woman who is just, just at the very beginning of this? maybe just come out to herself, just recognize this, is just starting to grapple with it. And, uh, 
and the universal message message even from people who are who have nothing to do with the church and and really this was pretty rare i had one woman i talked to who was was kind of somewhere agnostic atheist you know not sure about god at all but for for the vast majority it was it'll be okay god loves you exactly as you are just breathe and trust in him and uh i think that one of the things that this forces women into and men is a recognition of uh being forced to come to know god the true nature of god not not the judgmental god who's ready to pounce on any misstep that they may have come out of you know out of out of class on Sunday, you know, feeling that that that's, he's just waiting for them to do wrong and they better do right, or they're going to be punished. Um, but recognizing a God who is love, he is love. He is the embodiment of love. Um, as we come to know the true nature of God, we stop worshiping idols. We stop worshiping a God who is made in the image of man, in the image of mankind who is, you know, slow to forgive and quick to anger. And, and that perception of God is, is so, so wrong. Joseph Smith said that three things are necessary for us to have faith unto salvation. And the first is the knowledge that God actually exists. The second is a correct understanding of his character, perfection, and attributes. And the third is an understanding that the path which we are pursuing is in accordance with his will. And I think when I, you know, I, I think that understanding, correct understanding of who God is, is fundamental because otherwise our incorrect perception of him um, creates a barrier between us and him. It create it causes us to have expectations about what he would or should say that may get in the way of what he actually is willing to say to us. And so when we can clear away those expectations and those false understanding of him and that he's he would be angry at us, he would be disappointed in us, he's not going to talk to us, he's not, you know, we can't come before him because he will be, he will, he's disgusted by us. That is not who God is. And so as we come to know God and come to know his, his correct nature, his true nature, then, then we can really start to hear what his path is for us. And that may be surprising. Um, I think that's why it's called personal revelation, because it's not, it's not general revelation. It is specific, personal, um, Elder Maxwell called it customized, personalized tutoring that we receive from him. And, uh, and that's, that's a lot of what I saw with these women as they were able to um, release this, this damaging idea of who God is and how he will interact with them and recognize that he, he is patient and long-suffering and abundantly willing to pardon and, uh, and creative. And, and as, as we begin to, to see that, we start to have more access to hearing him as President Nelson has urged us to do, to being able to um, to not look to others, to parents, to uh, even 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 to leaders, uh, I think I outsourced too much 
of my uh, <laughs> outsource too much of my my um, desire for direction to a leader rather than going directly to God. And I think he wants us to come directly to him. That's a terrific segment. And it's interesting you started your first segment with that general theme. It seems to be a theme of your ministry and your feeling and your personal experience. And listeners, I agree with Megan. I, As she was talking, I'm reflecting on my YSA assignment. And the longer I served in that assignment, the more I sort of came to the conclusion that a lot of culturally or whatever, the YSAs would look to me for answers for their lives. And um, I just felt impressed to not answer their questions generally. Mm. I didn't, I wanted to teach them fundamental principles, just like you taught for them to get personal revelation for themselves. Because I realized my life experiences, my personal journey, my understanding may not reflect God's will for their life. And I didn't want to prescribe to them their best path forward. Mm-hmm. I wanted to teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. And I think that's, you know, I think culturally sometimes we're taught to sort of look to whatever source for the best answer in our life. And sometimes those sources are terrific and helpful. And I don't want to say don't listen to those sources, but I think you've got to take them as data points to then just take it to Heavenly Father and get direction for you for your life, just like you've so perfectly um, shared with us. And to me, that's, that is consistent with President Nelson. Hear him. Yeah, I think follow the prophet is a true principle. But if we stop at the prophet and we don't continue on to, to God, to Heavenly Father, to say, well, the prophet has said this. Now, what does that look like? How do I go about implementing that? What, do, what, what's your desire for me with this? Then, then we're starting to worship the wrong source of information. Um, and, and as I say, I think I do follow the prophet, but I don't stop there. And I think in the past I made the error of stopping there rather than going to God and God wants us to come to him and the prophet wants us to hear him. Um, so they're, they're in, they're in agreement with each other. (laughs) I agree with that very much. So, um, Keep sharing thoughts or I'll ask you another question. Well, I'll just add that as a seminary teacher, um, I was taught, I taught early morning seminary for six years. And and at the beginning of that, I remember being instructed to be um, the guide to the side, not the sage on the stage. In other words, to direct my students, because they they would come, you know, they they love seminary teachers and they come to us and they ask us for advice and, and, uh, and it's easy to to let that kind of go to your head, um, and and I was so grateful for that instruction at the very beginning because that just ran through my head throughout that time. And then later, I taught institute for nine years, and so you know that that awareness for me to not get caught up in in that little bit of hero worship um, and to pontificate or to give them my wisdom or to but to direct them to the Savior, to direct them to pray to heavenly father to direct them you know that that i was just the guide directing them to the source of truth not the source of truth i'm not the source of truth there is one source of truth and uh and i was a teacher but my role there was to help them come under christ that's just 
those principles are so helpful for parents, for local leaders, um, for each of us individually in our own journeys. That's just a terrific segment you shared. I encourage us all to ponder on that and how we can do better on that. Because I do think, you know, I just thinking back of my experience as a father and as a church leader, the that being sort of the expert to answer any question that was presented to me because I was set apart with priesthood, whatever the language we use to describe a, a local bishop. And, you know, I, I'm a, Elder Ballard talks about this. He says, I'm not an expert in everything just because I'm an apostle. I go yes. to the experts to learn things, you know, just because I have this calling and this mantle and this priesthood and priesthood keys doesn't make me an expert. Mm -hmm. I go to experts to learn how to better learn things. Yeah. So I think he teaches a really important principle there. And and I appreciate, um, I have viewed my priesthood leaders as spiritual advisors and valued their insight when I was deciding to come out publicly. Uh, it was right around the same time as I was doing a temple recommend renewal, and I met with my bishop and my stake president for that. And, uh, and with both of them, I asked them if they had any counsel for me as I was preparing to to be more public. And, and they had been with me on this road. They were good friends and, and also, you know, also priesthood leaders. And my, uh, my bishop was a, is a, um, a nurse anesthetist. Did I say that right? And, and he just commented, you know, when, uh, Sometimes at work, you know, stories, something will happen and a story will be shared. And, and as it goes through kind of the rumor mill, it gets distorted. And he said, I would just counsel you to make sure everyone that, that you tell your story yourself. And that was really helpful to me. And, and in deciding to write an email where I really could frame my story the way I wanted to, present the information the way I wanted to, and then I could send that out to people so that it wasn't, you know, it, they weren't hearing a distortion of my story or, or a, you know, a, a limited take on it. And, uh, and the stake president actually um, ended up, you know, helping me edit my letter. Uh, I was talking to his wife when I decided to do it. And she said, oh, you should have, you know, you should have Mike review it too, because he's in HR and he's really good at that. And and so I asked him and then I realized, oh, he's also my stake president. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I I valued their insight, but but I didn't stop there. I mean, I I I I always went to God for specific direction. For example, specific direction on when to come out publicly. And then I talked to them about their insight on that process and any counsel they might have for me. I love the word counsel. And I love um, that they walked with you to make that road better for you versus telling you how to walk that road. Mm -hmm. So it seems like you felt pretty good about coming out and they didn't, you know. Relatively, yeah. Relatively, and that's scary, but... I think they, I sense they sort of let you make that decision. Maybe some yeah. had some feelings about that, but I think in your situation, I would hope that you ultimately felt like you owned that decision. And, mm -hmm. and then these two examples, they said, well, we'll help you make that decision better. Yes. And you were open to their counsel to help you do that better. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think there's tremendous value added is that just in this counseling process now, 
if you weren't sure about coming out, maybe you ask them and that helps you just give more context to then go and pray about it, which is more, I've always felt that getting more information as I take decisions to Heavenly Father mm-hmm. helps me make better decisions. But I think the information generally trying to gather is just perspectives versus prescriptions. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And and I mean, both of those men, I've, I've heard stories about other people having different experiences, but I've been very blessed with... Um, with spiritual advisors, with priesthood leaders who have never dictated any, never been directive. You know, they've been thoughtful. They've heard what I've said. They've added to it. Uh, I've never felt any, any, any push to go in, in an opposite direction from the direction I received from God. I think this is good to go on this a little bit, listeners, because I think it just helps us know if we're walking this road or we're trying to help others walk this road is just principles. Um, even though we may have a feeling for how they should walk this road, if we're a parent or a local leader, mm-hmm. um, to, to try to do the best we can to help them own their own path forward and, and make I'll, the very best decision they can for themselves. I'll add that. I think that when parents or priesthood leaders do become directive, that often comes out of fear um, parents have a lot of fear about the future, about what this will look like. What if you leave the church? What if you're telling me you're leaving the church? And I've experienced that. I have a queer daughter who, um, before before she came out to she she had, I saw her leaving the church, um, and that was harder for me than than you know than than her marriage to her wife. Um, that I had a deeper sense of loss and of fear. And, and I acted in really codependent ways. I, I remember, um, thinking I would go visit her over a weekend because then I would go to church and maybe she would come with me. And maybe when she just heard the music, maybe she would feel the spirit and that would make a difference. I mean, I was, I was trying to manage this and, and control and fix and rescue, because I don't know, maybe I didn't think God was doing a good enough job at that point and he needed a little help. I needed to get out of his way is what needed to happen. I needed to let go of my agenda and love my daughter. And he was very clear in, uh, in letting me know that um, I, I was to love her and he, was, and he would teach her. I could trust him with that. Um, and, I, uh, and, and that may not look the way I think it should, um, but, but I, I can, I learned that I could trust him. I could trust him to work in my daughter's life for good and letting go of the fear of what might happen if he wasn't paying close enough attention. <laughs> um, letting go of my fear improved that relationship dramatically. And I think for parents, for priesthood leaders, if we're acting out of fear, uh, nothing good comes out of fear. Um, trusting God trusting God's plan, trusting that all will work, everything's going to be okay. Um, even if we're, if, if we feel that everything is, is just blowing up, um, this, this is, this is how the plan of salvation is designed to work, uh, for people to learn through their own experience. And we can trust in that plan. Thanks for talking about your queer daughter. Um, 
that's a really important segment. Um, you said some really thoughtful things there. Let go of my agenda, and and um, just sort of love her, and not try to manage everything. For context, how long have you been on this road with a queer daughter? Is this two years, ten years? Um, let's see. She, ooh, I don't know. She, she probably came out to me, and actually, I came out to her at the same time. I had not told any of my daughters. And as she talked to me, she was so afraid that I would reject her. And it seemed like none of my reassurances were, were really helping to take away that fear. And I decided that was the time for me to share with her that, that I've always been attracted to women. And, and it was a, that was really a beautiful moment. And that was probably, probably four four years ago, four or five years ago, something like that. What a beautiful parenting moment. What a moment of vulnerability for you to come out. And thanks for sharing that in the podcast. And It was one of the first times that I was grateful for my attraction to women because it, it, it helped her believe that I wouldn't reject her, that I wasn't disappointed in her. She was so afraid of that. Even growing up, I mean, I feel like I was surprised that she was afraid of that. Um, but she was. I mean, our, we we go to our deepest fears um, in a situation like that, and uh, and I was grateful at that moment that I could that I had this experience to call on to be able to reassure her. Talk to other parents that are just walking this road in the very first six months, three days, year, <laughs> no, you know, with knowing they have a queer child. You've talked already really helpful, but just other, and I know you have these discussions all the time. <laughs> um, just talk to those parents, you know, that want to do the right thing to raise a queer Latter-day Saint. Um, I will just say that, that I think often the first re- response is fear. Um, and, and probably the first positive, you know, more positive response is fear for some it's, it's anger or it's rejection or it's disgust. And that, that's unfortunate. I think that's a cultural, something that is, uh, comes out of our, 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 what we've grown up believing about gay people. And, uh, but I think, I think all of that, you know, Elder Cook has talked about, let me just pull up a quote really quick, um, because I think it's important that we hear this with authority, more authority than I have. Uh, Elder Cook, Quentin L. Cook stated, as a church, nobody should be more loving and compassionate. Let us be at the forefront in terms of expressing love, compassion, and outreach. Let's not have families exclude or be disrespectful of those who choose a different lifestyle as a result of their feelings about their own gender. Um, I think there is a great fear of condoning sin. Uh, and and the root of the word condone is to withhold judgment, the Latin uh, condonare. Um, we don't have to punish. That's not our role. And so I think we can stop worrying about condoning. When my husband was, when our, when our stake presidency was being reorganized, he, uh, he was meeting with uh, a member of the presidency of the 70 and an area authority, an, an area 70. And, and they 
do kind of this exit interview with the stake presidency that's being released. And as part of that, they were asking him about his family. And he said he had five daughters and four were married and one was marrying her wife that summer. So he made it very clear it was a same-sex marriage. And and he said that the 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 general authority or the, the authority who was talking to him at that moment said, you are going to that wedding. It wasn't a question. It was a statement. And my husband said, yes, of course we are. And, uh, and he said, that is right. And so um, I think there's been some confusion in the past. Do we support our children? Do we allow their, their, you, you know, their, their boyfriend or girlfriend to come to our home? Do we go to their wedding? Is that supporting evil? Is that condoning wrong? You know, we, we love our kids. We love our kids. And we let God work with them in whatever way he's going to. Let him teach them. Let him work with them. Trust him. And we just love our children. And I think there's been some discussion about love and law and which is more important. Our role as parents is to love. I had a lot of years of teaching law. <laughs> Lots of years. My daughter was in my seminary class too. And so she heard me teach a lot and it became very clear from God that my role was to love her. Um, I know for me, it is not my fear of punishment or my fear of disappointing God or my fear of losing my exaltation that keeps me out of the arms of a woman. It is the love I feel from God that draws me to him. Love is the most powerful force in the universe. And that love, it's not, it's not law that scares me into, into keeping my covenants. It is the love of God. I love my covenants because they bind me to him. And he is, he is the greatest source of love I've ever felt in my life. His love, his patience, his tenderness with me. Even when I was, you know, when I was first coming out, when I first came out to myself and I was so angry and I was swearing at him and I don't swear, I didn't grow up swearing. I started this at that point and saying terrible things. And he just wrapped his arms around my shattered soul and just loved me. And how can I turn away from that? That is what, that is what causes me to have such gratitude for, for the covenants that bind me to that loving presence. I'm just moved, Megan. You have this gift of your teaching experience, your insights in the gospel, being a parent, being gay, and bringing that all those beautiful parts of you to just teach the gospel in a really wonderful, mature, long view way. Thank you. Um, it's very helpful. You know, I think your book will reflect that and be a needed voice in our community. Um, I still want to stay with your daughter a little bit just because I think it helps other parents. Did you feel like, okay, I'm married to a man. Uh, my daughter's just come out to me. Did you feel like this is the way you do it in our home? No, and I didn't. did she feel like, <laughs> mom, I'm going to do what you did. I, I'm going to follow your path. And I mean, so that's sort of back to this principle we're trying mm -hmm. to communicate. Just how did the application of that happen in your family? Um, I don't. I don't want to 
tell her story. You're her sensitive. Story. To yeah. That. I, and I want to be sensitive to her. She, um, as she left the church, she had a lot of hurt and pain from her church experience. And, uh, and that, that, uh, that kind of shaped her, her, you know, her feelings about, about, uh, about faith. Um, I don't think, you know, at, at the time that she came out to me, she was about to move in with her girlfriend and, uh, and we just did everything we could to embrace, embrace this woman who was an important part of her life. Uh, we had a, we had a family gathering coming up, uh, in just a few months and we invited her to bring, to bring her, her girlfriend to that. And that's where we first met her. And, um, and she has, she has become a beloved part of our family. Um, I think what's difficult for, it's not difficult for me to see her. I, I feel, I feel I was able to, you know, to embrace her, her girlfriend, now her wife. Um, we attended her, we weren't able to actually attend her wedding because it was in Toronto and it was during COVID and the border was closed. Uh, we attended a big celebration this, this past fall, right after the border opened. And, and it was just a joyous, it was as joyous and much easier than some of our other weddings because they catered it. So I didn't have to be in the kitchen for that one, but, um, it, it was beautiful and our family has embraced her and, uh, uh, I think it is more challenging for my daughter to see me. Um, she feels that that gay women should live their authentic life. And the biggest nightmare of her life always was, you know, if she had a dream about my husband and me getting divorced, that was that was her biggest fear, her biggest nightmare. And so she's in a place of of feeling this tension between, maybe feeling what I should do as a gay woman and yet not wanting her parents to separate. So I think it's, it's been a challenge for her, maybe more than for me, um, for her to look at my relationship, um, than for me to look at hers. Yeah. You've done a great job articulating pretty tender questions. And I think your family story is just a beautiful love story. Your family, like my family, is not perfect. You can have a beautiful love story and not be perfect. This is a beautiful love story. When you talk about wanting to meet her partner and her wife and support of their relationship, and um, I, I just think that models what we're asked to do as parents. Mm-hmm. We preserve the relationship. We can't control the outcome as you're sharing with us. And in a way, that's relieving as parents. It's, it is. It's not our job to sort of... <laughs> orchestrate this perfect outcome with our kids, but talk to parents that are faced with, you know, I, I kind of, as I got married and raised my family, I had this vision. We'd all be in the temple together. We'd mm-hmm. all be on the covenant path. We'd all be together for eternity. And now I've got a kid out of the church whether that's a straight or a queer kid. Just talk to parents that have kids that have decided to leave the church and what yeah. you would say to them to give them Whatever you'd say to them. I will say that uh, what helped me the most in that was maybe the grace of God, but also the 12-step program, um, learning how to identify codependency. And I, I was involved in one that was... Uh, it was originally developed for family services, and now now it's, it's kind of independent. It's called Healing Through Christ. Um, 
and and similar to Al-Anon um, in in being for um, for you know family members. It's a family member support group, and the emphasis is on recognizing codependency, um, and that's the the need to protect my happiness by making sure that your choices <laughs> don't threaten that. So so if you are um, if you are behaving in ways that, that, you know, that cause me distress or fear, I'm going to try to fix you or rescue you or, or control you or manipulate you into behavior that, that is more comfortable for me. Um, learning how to stay on my side of the road, learning how to let go and let God, um, learning how to trust that other people have their own growth process. And if I try to intervene, I'm going to disrupt that necessary growth. I'm actually going to get in God's way if I try to rush in and be their savior. They have a savior. That's not my role. It's not my job. And so that has was really helpful to me in, in being able to let go of of, you know, feelings of despair and I've got to fix this. And, and this is, this is so, you know, things aren't right. I need to make sure every chair is at the table, you know, every, every chair is filled at the table, no empty chairs. And, and, and I understand, I understand that I, um, we actually had, uh, a time when my, when my, um, one of my daughters was married, my, all of my daughters had been endowed at that point. And so we were all in the temple together for her wedding. And I think back on that as a beautiful moment, but I can also think back on this past week when my daughter and her wife were here and we were all together in a kitchen making dumplings together. And that was a beautiful, loving moment too. And I just, at the very beginning, as I prayed about this, God told me to be at ease about my daughter and her path forward. And this was when she was, when I knew she was leaving the church. Um, and that feeling of, I can be at ease and trust him to work in her life for good has enabled me to let go and not act in these really destructive ways of trying to force her to do what is right in my mind, because that's not God's way. It's just a terrific segment. Um, for all of us, um, codependency, just how do we see that in ourselves? So if I'm hearing what you've just said, and I'm wondering, am I parenting in this style? How do I see that within myself? You know, I think it's a difficult transition from parenting toddlers that you, you know, you have to pull their, you know, grab their arm and pull them away from the street um, to teenagers that, you know, you don't want to give full reign to because they're just not smart enough for that yet, <laughs> not experienced enough for that yet, um, to adult children. And uh, there, there's a book by Melody Beatty called Codependent No More that I would recommend to every single parent because it helps us to recognize in ourselves this need to, to I mean, it's with the best intentions to help them to do the right thing because we know from our experience and and we can save them a lot of suffering and we can save them a lot of anguish if we just fix their lives for them. Well, that suffering and that anguish is how we got the wisdom 
you know, and and they have the right to that learning process too. Um, and I think recognizing in myself when I am crossing over off of my side of the road, being able to keep my mouth shut is probably the most valuable skill I've acquired as the parent of an adult child and let them learn, let them do, let them do their, their life, let them, let them, and you know, that's not to say if they come to us and they say, Hey, we're trying to, you know, figure out we have some financial questions about the best way to, to buy a house or, or, or what happens when, the light goes on in the car and it doesn't go off or, you know, I mean, I'm happy if they come to me and ask. Um, but I've really learned to scale back my desire and I'm a teacher. I want to teach people all the time. I've learned to, that sometimes the best way to do that is just to be quiet. So it's really, and I'll, I'll say Becky McIntosh's book, love boldly is a beautiful and honest. She is so honest about the mistakes she made um, and her learning process as her son came out as gay. And that's, that's an amazing book. I would, I would recommend that to any parent. I agree. Becky's terrific. That whole family's mm-hmm. terrific. It's just a great segment on parenting. We Listeners, we get into all these different topics that <laughs> I think they're just really helpful. And you have a gift for a long view and really good skills in this space. And it's relieving if we can get to where you are. And I just love, I'm stuck on the image of you and your daughter and her wife in the kitchen. And the beautiful, you saw the beautiful moment in the temple when you're all together. And that's not a reality of your family experience anymore, where your whole family's together. And sometimes we talk about in the church for people that have that experience and they share that in testimony meeting. And that's not going to be the reality of your family and a lot of LDS parents' Mm -hmm. families. But I love that moment in the kitchen. Yeah. For some reason, just, and I've thought of your daughter's wife and I would guess if she were on the podcast, she would say, I was pretty nervous to meet this LDS family and wondered how I'd be expected in a traditional, you know, religion. But here she is in your home, seems like fully loved and supported and making dumplings, I think you said. And yeah. I just think that's a beautiful moment of humanity and a mm-hmm. And a beautiful family love story. Yeah. It's a holy moment. A holy moment. When we come together and it is a moment that is blessed with, with love and acceptance, there, there is holiness in that. There is God in that. And it's interesting because we met her for the first time in Chicago over dumplings also. She's, <laughs> she's from Shanghai. And so we were, she was introducing us to uh, soup float dumplings. Um, so she, yeah, she's, she's amazing. She's wonderful. And she is just a good, kind, good woman. And our, I mean, I, my daughter is happier than I have ever seen her in her life. And that's not the narrative we have about people who walk away from the church or who enter into, you know, relationships that are not, you know, met with God's approval, but that's the truth of it. Um, and I believe God is working in her life for good. Love that. I've certainly come to the same conclusion, and it's relieving in a way to just accept people for where they are and love them. And I think that I just think that's part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, more on your book. Um, we've kind of talked, there's three questions we've got kind of ahead of time that we could discuss. I'll just read all three, and you can. 
you know, we've got about 10 or 15 minutes to decide which of any of these or anything you want to talk about. Where did you learn about the community of Latter-day Saints? What surprised you the most? Who can benefit from reading your book? And what does belonging look like for LGBTQ members? Yeah, I'd like to zero on a, on a couple of things. Okay. One is personal revelation and the other is belonging. Um, I think we need to give people grace and believe that as they are seeking to hear the voice of the Lord, if it tells them something that we don't agree with, we just need to let to trust in them and trust in the process. Um, when I was in my early 20s, my mom um, left the church. She became a Catholic and she told me that God was telling her to do that. And my response as a, you know, 20, 23 year old who knows it all was, nope, God doesn't lead people out of covenant. He would never say that. You didn't get that from him. And that was what I held on to for a long time. Um, I didn't see how that fit in with God's plan. It wasn't God's plan. God's plan is to bring people, gather people into covenant, not to lead them away from it. Um, I'm wiser now. And I realize that, uh, that he could, in fact, um, have given her that guidance. That might've been something she needed in ways that I didn't understand. And I do know that she didn't, she never had a testimony of Joseph Smith or of some of the other basic tenets of the gospel. She received her testimony of Joseph Smith as she was volunteering in the mother house of a convent assisting retired nuns. That was where she came to believe in Joseph Smith. And it was just in a moment, a moment of inspired insight, watching these elderly nuns assisting each other and seeing that God does his work through other people and realizing that's what he did with Joseph Smith. Um, I don't know that she had to spend years outside of the church. It was certainly heart wrenching for me because I kept trying to figure out, okay, so which kingdom is she going to? You know, I would lie awake at night and think through section 76 and all of the conditions and figure out which bucket she belonged in now. And that was so fruitless, <laughs> such a waste of time. Um, and it also, it also reflected my thinking that this decision is determined is determining her whole her whole life moving forward. I think we have a very myopic vision of of one decision or or one decade or you know um, I I love how you talk about the long view. Heavenly Father takes the long view, and sometimes he he may see we're going in a direction and see that, well, if they're going in this, 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 this direction, I can teach them this. And I think sometimes those circuitous routes, uh, those scenic views off, off what we may consider the covenant path are exactly the learning that we individually need in order to, to grow in the way that God wants us to grow. And so I guess I would just say, I've heard, I've talked to so many women who talked about God giving them specific direction. And these are women who know how to receive revelation. Um, they know God's voice. They're not 16-year-olds saying, ah, how do I tell the difference between God and my own feelings? These are women who, who are seasoned. And 
and they may hear God say to them, your way forward is to keep the commandments or go date. You need this experience. Or I brought you into this relationship with this woman so that you can be healed. Um, and for us to look at that and say, nope, doesn't line up with our expectations. So I'm going to dismiss that is, is really underestimating the way that God may work in our lives. Um, the other thing I'd like to talk about is this idea of belonging, because that is, that is one of the major, uh, focuses of the book. Um, I talked to, we, we need to figure out how to create a place of belonging for our LGBTQ members, not just if they are, if they are, you know, staying celibate or in a mixed orientation marriage, because Every woman I talked to, with the exception of one, um, had a deep, profound testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of the Book of Mormon. Um, and I and I can illustrate this with 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 one couple I talked to. They were at the time I was talking to them. They were dating. They're now married. Um, one one of the women uh, one of the women had a had been in a marriage, had uh, some kids. Um, her husband had said to her, I, I can't do this. I don't believe in mixed orientation marriages. And so he initiated their eventual divorce. Um, and she felt if I can't, if he was her best friend and she thought if I can't make marriage succeed with, with him, I don't think it'll work with a man. And as she prayed, she had the instruction from God to go ahead, go, or the permission maybe. I don't know. I don't know how she would characterize it. And I don't want to put words in her mouth, but um, the impression to go date, you know, I want you to have this experience. And she started dating um, another woman who also had had her own, had a deep testimony of the gospel and had at one point had a moment where she prayed and just said, you've said that man is that he might have joy. Is that only for straight people or is that for me too? And he assured her that there was a way forward for her that would bring her joy. And so these, at the time I talked to them, did the initial interview, these two women were dating. Um, and, and it was as COVID restrictions were ending in the state where the woman with the children lived. And so they were going to church for the first time. She went to church with her girlfriend and her children and was called in by the stake president later that day and had a really raucous interview with him. He was very angry with her and, and he scheduled a membership council for the next Sunday to, to, uh, remove her membership. Um, during a time when she was working, she couldn't even attend and he told her it didn't make any difference. She had talked to her Bishop earlier and had said, if I, if, if we, observe the standards of, for the strength of youth, you know, is, will that, is that good? Is that what you want? And he said, oh, that ship has already sailed. You know, it doesn't make any difference what you do now. Um, so she was, she was in her stake facing the loss of her membership very, very quickly. Um, her, her girlfriend in, in another state, um, went to meet with her Bishop and he said, you know, I'm not, and she said, I, I don't, I know I can't have a temple recommend. I know I can't take the sacrament. I know I can't have a calling. All I'm asking for is one square foot of cloth on Sunday to sit and worship as I desire. 
And he said, come, you are welcome. And he said, I'm not going to hold a membership council unless unless it's with the purpose of restoring your temple covenants or restoring, you know, just come now. Just come and be with us. There is always a place for you. Um, They married and they are in... uh, (laughs) stayed in the area with where the the woman with the children was living um to be near their father and uh and they that couple has been instructed that they cannot hold hands or show any signs of affection if they want to come to church uh and they've been told that they cannot speak in second hour um and that goes beyond handbook instruction the handbook instruction even for someone who's excommunicated is that they can't give a talk they can't offer a prayer on behalf of the congregation. Uh, they don't won't have a calling, won't have temple recommend, you know, won't have temple privileges. But there's nothing that says they must be silent. And and this is something that I've seen play out not just with this couple, but with many others, where they are told they cannot have a voice. They can't make comments in Sunday school. They can't make comments in Relief Society. And taking that away taking away as, as the one and and you know all of all of the people I talk to are women who said have would not you know they're not agitating for same-sex marriage or saying you know they're not going to be speaking up if there's a lesson on the proclamation on the family they're not going to say well I don't believe that the church is wrong they should you know the these aren't women who would do that um but I think what it is is they are they are when I spoke to them, I had a profound sense, especially with this one woman, the one with the with the children, of God's love for her, and of his um, his continuing guidance to her. Uh, she has been inspired to reach out to me on in you know at 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 times when i i I specifically needed the the day that I was deciding to come out, she called me out of the blue on her way to work and she'd never called me before. And she said, I just felt like, I felt impressed that I should call you. And so the spirit is still working in their lives and that may disrupt the narrative of once, once you sin, once you have set yourself beyond, you know, beyond the spirit. And so I think actually hearing these women testify of Christ, share experiences from their missions, um, participate is in some way threatening um, to priesthood leaders who who don't want others to look at them and have any kind of admiration for them. And I don't know. I'm I'm conjecturing there, but but taking away that right to that opportunity to be part, to feel that they belong in those second hour meetings um, is often the thing that causes them to stop attending church. So this couple I talked about, they do come follow me with their kids on Sunday. And and the last time I talked to her, she sa- I said, where are you with church? And she said, I am waiting and hoping that they will come to us and tell us there's a space that we can come be there. But in the meantime, her children aren't able to attend. I mean, it it is, I think, I think we're missing an opportunity without any change in doctrine or policy. We can create a space where people can come and belong. And and Elder uh 
Elder Ballard says that we need to do this. He said, I want anyone who's a member of the church who is gay or lesbian to know I believe you have a place in the kingdom, and I recognize that sometimes it may be difficult for you to see where you fit in the Lord's church, but you do. We need to listen to and understand what our LGBT brothers and sisters are feeling and experiencing. Certainly, we must do better than we have done in the past so that all members feel they have a spiritual home where their brothers and sisters love them and where they have a place to worship and serve the Lord. So these families, these beautiful families, these same-sex families and their children want to be here with us and they realize they're not going to have the full privileges of first-class citizenship, but they want a space. And I think we can create that space. Um, we can we can create a place where they can come and feel they belong. I think we have a mandate to do that. And we are falling short when when we when we reject them. Um, and I think I think also we have an opportunity to create some sort of different, uh, some sort of different pathway for, you know, there's a difference between a woman who's going clubbing every weekend and, and hooking up with someone different every night. And, and these, these committed families who are, you know, who, who are having scripture study with their kids on a regular basis and who are praying and who, you know, one, one woman I talked to said, when they were still going to church and and they haven't continued because they were also told that they could not speak um, or contribute in any way in Relief Society. Um, she said, church was where we would go and feel pain. And when we would come home, that is where we could feel the spirit and feel healing. And that ought not to be. Our church ought to be a safe healing space for them as well as, you know, for their family as well as my family. Um, so so I, I talk about that some more in the book. I talk about best practices. Um, there, there's a section, you know, that's kind of geared towards church leaders that says, here's here's what we can do without without challenging church doctrine or, you know, this this is what we can do to create space and to create belonging because the consistent thing across the board as I interviewed these women was that they felt they didn't fit. Um, there wasn't a place uh, or it was hard to fit. If they came, they had to create their own place because they didn't feel that other people were really welcoming them into the space that they were in. And so they had to create their own sense of belonging, a great sense of loneliness among uh, people, especially those who had been away and then came back and and felt God calling them back, but didn't feel embraced by their by their church community. And I don't want to end on a sad note. <laughs> I think optimistically, we can be the Lord is creative when we go to him for so what can that look like in the handbook in the the first paragraph under same-sex attraction, it says we should reach out in love um, to to our you know ward or branch members, unit members. I'm not sure exactly how it says it, but who experience same-sex attraction, and and I see stake presidents on state councils and uh, 
unit leaders in unit councils saying, so what does that look like for us? And receiving direction from God and how do we do that? God is creative. He is loving. He He inspires us sometimes to come up with solutions that we we would never come up with on our own and, and yet make perfect sense. And so I think as we wonder what can that look like in, in our unit, in our stake, um, he will bless us and help us to know what that can look like for us. Just another terrific segment, Megan. Um, one of the things you're teaching in this whole thing is you have a personal story as an LGBTQ Latter-day Saint, but you're giving grace to all the paths people are taking. And I think there's a tendency with all of us, whether we're straight or LGBTQ, is to sort of say, this is the way you do it. But you have this grace to honor different paths, and it doesn't invalidate your path, and you don't feel threatened um, that your path becomes less authentic if other gay women are choosing a different path. And you're not taking... uh, That's one of the things I love about your ministry and others, is you're not saying you're just... Some people that have taken a path as an LGBTQ person want everybody to take the path. If they've left the church, they want everybody to leave. Or if they're in a mixed orientation marriage, most don't do that. But once in a while, you'll say, this is how you do it. Or, the, or a leader will point to you and say, this is how you do it. But I think throughout this podcast, you've just taught us that let's don't do that. Let's don't be prescriptive. Let's teach principles and let people govern themselves and give grace to people. And you've shown that. I love your story about your mom. Um, I remember um, teaching a series of young men as a YSA bishop. We had several that joined the church during that time. And then we had one young man was after maybe three or four were baptized and he did everything we asked. That what the missionaries came to church. He's Catholic, read the Book of Mormon, just looked me in the eye and said, I've got my answer. I'm supposed to stay Catholic. Hmm. And I, I sat with that for quite a while. And then I just, after maybe a couple of days of long walks, I just looked him in the eye and said, I trust you. Mm-hmm. And who am I to know? You've done everything we've asked you to do. And I just trust you. And I'm at peace that he was supposed to stay Catholic, that he actually got the answer he was supposed to get. And I don't understand all the reasons he got that answer, but I'm at peace with it. Mm. And my love for him, my friendship is, we're still friends. And I don't have this agenda relationship with him where he knows every time he sees me, it's about getting him in the church. Mm-hmm. It's about talking about his career and the things he's doing. And so I kind of, you know, and I love that. I, I have a comment about church discipline that reinforces what you said. I came to the conclusion, I think the handbook is the best time church discipline works is if someone sort of, if you cancel together and they feel it would be helpful to them, to fully return to the church. It would be a positive process um, unless it's required by the handbook, which it's not in the situation you described. Unless someone sort of feels feels really engaged in that and wants to fully return, my experience, it just drives them further away. Mm -hmm. And it's not helpful to them. And so there may be some exceptions to that, but I I think church discipline works best unless it's required. If there's sort of a willing participant and you counsel together, you talk about the process and you say, would this be helpful for you? Um, if you want to return to full activity in the church and hold a temple recommend, this is the process. Are you ready to go through the process? And 
sort of counsel together. And so they're involved in the process. I talked to a bishop a while ago who, who was saying that he had, I don't know, seven or eight LGBTQ members in his, in his ward. And, and some of them were sexually active. And he said, one, um, comes to church on Sunday and takes the sacrament. And he said, you know, I've considered what I should do concerning that situation. And he said, I felt strongly that her ability to come and connect with Christ on Sunday should not be taken away. And I just, I just loved that because maybe the answer for somebody else is different. Maybe they need to be, you know, to be, um, we just, we're, we're different. And so God has that customized, individualized tutoring for each of us. And I think for our priesthood leaders concerning us. There's, I don't want to shift the focus away from your book, but in my book, um, my second book, Improving Latter-day Saint Culture, we do have a, I do have a chapter on just repentance. And a lot mm-hmm. of things you're teaching are very consistent with what I'm suggesting in that, in that book. Things like that, we sort of have sometimes uh, what I would call a judicial approach where mm-hmm. there's an offense and there's a list of, a mm-hmm. judge would have a list of restrictions and it's a very mechanical, non-atonement based, not flexible type of criminal system, but the Savior's repentance plan is very different. And it would be, and I just came to the conclusion that, you know, not taking the sacrament, if you kind of counsel together and talk to that person, would it be helpful for you to not take the sacrament? And some would come to the conclusion, it would really help me. Mm -hmm. But a lot would say, no, it won't help me. It's more about looking forward and wanting to do better and maintain this relationship than a penalty for the past and particularly youth and a homeward not taking the sacrament, the shame mm. can be harder than any sort of repentance process, just everybody being aware. So I love what you just shared. And I think we all, it's a principle-based approach to repentance and customized just as you're sharing with us. Um, talk about um, the event. If people are listening to this podcast before April 12th, we're both speaking in an event. Share with our listeners this yes. event on this is April like 12th. Christmas coming early. I'm so excited for this. Um, we have an event on April 12th. And I, I I know, Richard, you said that you would put a link up for that. So yes. I, I won't go into details of how to find out about it. But it will be in Provo at the, there's a, a, a event space called the Reserve in the Provo Town Center Mall, I think, in South Provo. And um, Richard will be there speaking. Uh, ben Shalati will also be there, and so will Becky McIntosh. And then, um, and then I'll be there as well. And we'll all have copies of books. Well, there will be a little bit of time for visiting, and if if people want to to get a copy, they can get a copy of a book and and have the author sign it. But I am just thrilled. I think this will be an outstanding opportunity for for parents who just found out their kid is gay or for church leaders who are trying to figure out exactly how to deal with this situation in their ward um, or for people who are, you know, struggling to find their, their place in the church as a, as a LGBTQ Latter-day Saint. Um, I, I think it will, I'm, I'm just so excited to have all of these voices in one place and so grateful for the graciousness of, of each of you being willing to come. Um, so yeah, that'll be on April 12th, 7 PM. And, uh, and I'm, I'm, I cannot wait. I'm so excited for it. 
So we'll put a link in the show notes to that on April 12th. Um, it's not live stream. So if someone's listening, right, it's, it's not, an in-person only type of event. No, but it's being sponsored by a publisher and I believe they are intending to record it and put it up afterwards. Good. I love your segment on belonging. Um, and I sense the church leaders are using that word increasingly. Mm-hmm. And I sense the Office of Belonging at BYU. I've picked up a lot of, and I think that will continue to grow within the church. And I just, and I've said this before in the podcast, I think that there is no belief or behavior hurdle to feel welcome or a sense of belonging mm-hmm. in a congregation. And I think Christ's ministry um, taught us that. I think the gate narrows at the temple where there is a belief in behavior hurdle. And sometimes culturally we want to pull that back into the congregation or even to who's welcome in our home. Mm-hmm. And I think that we it, that's been helpful for me to frame it that way and say my goal, my responsibility as a ward member or as a local leader is to make sure that everybody feels like they belong yes, and are welcome. And what can I do to do that? And that to me is creating Zion. So that same-sex couple, you know, they know the teachings of the church. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really need to remind them. We just need to welcome them and make them feel they're welcome. Yeah. And so I yeah. love that. And uh, you could comment on that. But I'd also, um, a, a thought here is you, as listeners may know, Megan has moved from Michigan to Utah um, <laughs> during the spring or winter of 2022. And I think part of the reason she's here is to um, continue to talk about this. And if you've had impressions on, how can Megan help you in your ward or your stake or speak? Or um, I think part of the reason she's here is to continue to talk about this in a very public needed way. You have a, as I'm sure the listeners have heard, you have a wonderful way of talking about this subject. And I think all these sort of parts of your life, I think if this is me thinking out loud, listeners have come together in a way and now geographically be located here to be a significant voice of, of, increased understanding in this space in the Latter-day Saint community. So how do people find you? How do they contact you if they want to talk to you or have you come speak? Um, my website is megandecker.com. Spell Megan for okay, us. Okay, I will. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are a variety of ways to do that. Uh, M-E-G-H-A-N-D-E-C-K-E-R. Uh, dot com and and I uh, I Richard asked me what what brought us here and I told him we didn't know we're hoping to find out we felt a strong uh, urgency to come and I also I also uh, told you Richard that I was scared to come to Utah I was scared to move into a ward we live in Provo in the shadow of Cougar Stadium and uh, and I didn't know how I would be accepted. You've been gone for decades. We have. We have. Um, and I, I don't know what every ward in Utah County is like, but boy, I feel like the Lord picked us up and put us into exactly the right one for me to feel a sense of belonging. I'd like to just share a quote really quick from Bonnie Parkin, who said, belonging is being needed, loved, and missed when you're away. Belonging is needing, loving, and missing those who are away. That is the difference between attending and belonging. And I think not feeling 
that one belongs isn't limited to the LGBTQ community. I think there are a lot of people. Um, I know Richard, your 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 brother wrote a, an amazing book talking about the reasons that people leave the church, and it's not because they want to go sin; it's because they feel judged, they feel they don't belong, they feel they're you know, and so. Um, I think that creating belonging for each other has a lot to do with um, with being needed and loving and missing one another. And for me, I already feel a sense of belonging in my ward, and I'm incredibly, incredibly grateful for that. And my friends in Michigan know how scared I was to come out here, and it's been it's been an amazing experience. I just think if we have you on the podcast in a couple of years, you will be able to tell, and that's an open invitation to talk more about why you came here and um, the work you're doing and able to do that's so needed. But you have, you just, um, on behalf of all of our listeners, Megan, this has been a terrific podcast. And you, I hope you know how gifted you are in your ability to teach the gospel. Mm-hmm. And um, to teach it on a practical level, the front line to help us do better. I think of the term gathering of Israel. President Nelson uses that a lot. And if I did word associate with that, I'd think of the couple on their knees praying in some remote country as the missionaries knock on their door to bring him the gospel. I still think of that, but I think of that same-sex couple that wanted to come to church. I mm-hmm. think of all of our LGBTQ members. I think of our own people that don't feel a sense of belonging and they're mm-hmm. Israel and we're called to gather, not sift. And sometimes our congregations feel like we're sifters or our comments cause people mm-hmm. to feel they're not welcome. Um, there's a lot of political divisiveness and sometimes a political party is where people feel the same about everything. I, and our church congregations need to live a higher, holier law where there's space for differences. To me, that's creating Zion, not sameness, but unity. In diversity, and so I invite us all to think about if we reframe up that term that we all love as Latter Day Saints gathering of Israel to think about our own members. Um, they're Israel, and sometimes we need to do a better job of just gathering our own people. That's beautiful, Richard, and I think we are hearing more and more uh, talking about gathering is the first step, and belonging is wow. the next step. Elder Uchtdorf talks about that. Um, come and belong. So it's not, you know, we gather and then we we create this belonging space. Anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? <laughs> I've talked a long time. So I just, I just want to tell you how grateful I am for this opportunity to be here again with you today. Well, I wonder when we were passing in the hallway of the Island High in the 70s, if we'd ever imagined we'd be doing Podcasts weren't invented. I don't even think the radio was invented. Uh-huh. We did have the radio listeners, but... I'll tell you, I never imagined I would be talking about this publicly. Two years did ago, you know, I didn't imagine. I think you talked about this in your podcast, but even though you came out in your 50s, I think mm-hmm. you've known for a long time. Oh, yeah. This isn't yeah. like a... Known, but would not know. Yeah. I had denial to protect me until I was ready to face the reality of something that seemed so threatening. And, and when, yeah, when we were teenagers, I didn't see any space to be uh, attracted to girls and be in the church. And so that attraction was buried under a mountain of shame for a long, long time. Yeah, and that's part of I love this opening line. We'll just close with this from your book introduction. Shame is the real enemy. And I believe that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's Satan's, one of Satan's greatest tools. So 
My friend Megan Decker, great to have you on this podcast. Please buy her book, listeners. <laughs> um, we'll put a link to the Amazon page. It'll be officially out on the 10th of April. You can order it now, pre-order it now. If you're listening to this before the 10th of April, read it, share it with others. I just think it'll help us create Zion. It'll help us gather Israel. It'll help us bring us together as the same human family. So this is Megan Doc Decker and Richard Osler signing off on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. <laughs>